Good morning, church. I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, my name is Kendrick, I'm the pastor here at Calvary Church. I'm so grateful uh, just for the opportunity to worship with you this morning. Um, we are going to continue our walk through Ecclesiastes, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open or click on to um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And this morning is going to be a little bit different than some of the previous w- weeks, as I, I hope you remember, because we, we talk about this a lot, but the, the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to point out the frustrations in our life, the frustrations with living under the sun, the, the, the frustrations of having a limited perspective on what is going on in the, the world around us. And the author takes these frustrations and uses them to point us towards God. In the last several weeks, we've looked at many frustrations. We've looked at the frustrations that come with the monotony of life, with wealth, with wisdom, with power or stature in the workforce, and none of those seem to address the problems of the world or satisfy the desires of our soul. And and the author is very deliberate in doing that. He is pointing those out to say, you need God, right? He is the provider of all the meaning in our lives, Which takes us to chapter 5, and the beginning of this chapter is very interesting, and there's a lot of debate about how these first seven verses fit into Ecclesiastes, how they fit into this book, and we're going to look at two of these major thoughts. Uh, The first major thought is, we we know that the author is a preacher king, and so the, the first major thought is that he stepped out of his role of being in a devil's advocate of being an antagonist and saying, hey, if there is no God, then X, Y, and Z. But here, in these verses, he clearly talks about God, and he clearly talks about worshiping God. And some people say he he stepped out of that role, and he just went straight preacher mode on the people that were listening. If you remember from last week, we were talking about um, injustices in the world, and and so he's talking to these people in front of him. Next week, we're going to talk about the rich and money and finances. So right in the middle of that, as he's talking to those people, he just goes, I'm going preacher mode on you. I'm stepping out of that role. I'm going to tell you how to worship God. You guys think you're worshiping God, but you're far from God. And so that's one explanation is that he just couldn't take it anymore. The second explanation is we know that at the end of Ecclesiastes, he points out, he comes to the conclusion of this entire argument that the sole purpose of man is to fear God is to worship God. And so through the book of Ecclesiastes, we go from vanity to reverence. And some people believe this is just simply the the introduction of that transition. And so now he is introducing us to God, and he's introducing us to what worship is all about. Well, both of those explanations help us understand actually the meaning of this passage. And so it's actually helpful to know those. And here's simply... The the point of this is that the meaning of this passage is that worship both begins and ends with God, right? That worship is about God and that when we truly know God and we fear him out of reverence for his perfect love and his grace that is without end and his mercies that are new every day, we are led to worship him. And it's these truths that lead us to, to worship the one true God, right? God is what gives meaning to our worship. Worship that is not God-centered is meaningless worship, right? If we center that worship on anything else, it is completely meaningless, right? Corporate worship is not about you coming here and, and gracing God with your presence, 
right? Saying, hey, God, uh, um, it's about me, and I have a lot of things to do today, but for your sake, I'm going to come to church and worship, right? That's not what worship is about. It's not about what we like or what we expect or what we demand, Somehow, in recent years, when we start looking at the church, we've become worship consumers instead of worship producers, right? We are expecting people to worship us. We're expecting the whole worship set to be to our needs, to be to what we like, to be to our preferences. That's not what worship is about. Worship is for God. Worship is simply about one thing, God. And when we make worship about us and what we want and what we prefer, we make worship into something meaningless. We make it into something that is no resemblance of worship anymore. It's like when we tell kids in sports that it doesn't matter if you win or lose as long as you have fun, right? That's, you just change the meaning of sports, right? When we look at sports, I, I had to look this up, sports is defined as an activity involving physical exertion and skill in which an individual or team, get this, competes against one another. Right? There's a lot of things that we can do for fun. We can play catch. That's fun. We can go out and shoot hoops. That's fun. I know some people, they go for a run. Not so much fun for me. Right? That's, that's a punishment when you are training for sports. You go run if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. But some people do that for fun. And, and that's okay. Those are fun things to do, but it's not a sport. We're not competing. And when we take competition out of sports, we change the definition of sports. Right? When winning is meaningless, well, we're not competing. We're just playing a game. We're just, we might even be having fun at that game, but we're not competing in a sport. We're just playing. And in the same way, when we take God out of worship, we aren't worshiping anymore, right? We're just, we're just playing. We're just going through the motions of worship, but we aren't truly worshiping if we've taken God out of worship. And in this passage we're going to be looking at today, this preacher, this author, he gives us these three keys on how to keep God at the center of our worship, how to keep our worship focused on God so it doesn't become meaningless worship, and I'm going I'm to tell you, this was actually uh, a tough week to plan because it was actually pretty convicting. This was, a, 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 I had to look at my own life and my own worship and had to ask myself, am, am I moving to the center of worship and moving God out? So let's just jump right in here. We've got some things to learn. We're going to go to chapter 5, verse 1. And I'm going to read the whole passage. We'll talk about a little bit of context and set it up. And then we're going to look at these three truths to help our our worship be meaningful and not meaningless. Chapter 5, verse 1 begins like this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the God. To draw near or listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty or utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, 
there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now, as we look at this passage, there's a few things that I want us to look at that we need to understand or we can easily miss or, or, or take these passages out of context or this verse out of context. The, the first thing I want to look at is that, God is, that, that the author here, he's addressing God-fearers. Right? He's addressing people that have gathered to worship God. When we look at verse 2, there's that phrase that says, before God. And in the, in the original language, he, that's a plural statement, that there's people that have gathered together to worship before God. So he's specifically speaking in this passage about public worship. He's, he's talking about what you guys are doing right now, about here, coming to the church. And it's almost like I'm addressing you all right now and say, hey, I know you, you guys came here to worship. You're not doing a very good job. Right? I'm, I'm going to tell you some of the things you're doing wrong because you guys are not doing well. Right? He's not talking to pagans. He's talking to God-fears. He's talking to the church when he writes this. And so we need to keep that in mind as we look at this. He's, he's addressing the church, what we have today, and he's talking about public worship, what we are doing right now. And then second, he mentions this term, it's fear God, and we see this as we look through this book, we see this term, and that can have a whole bunch of meanings depending on the words that were used and the context that it's in. We know that in chapter three, he talked about fear God, and he was talking about the sovereignty of God. Right, that God has the power of life and death and he controls and his words and his actions, they last forever. So what, guess what? You should fear him. And that's what he's talking about in chapter 3. Here in chapter 5, it's a little bit different. And he's saying you should fear God because of his holiness and his righteousness. Right? There's this respect, there's this reverence. It's, it's, it's different. And this is a fear that comes with understanding who God is and knowing who God is and knowing that he is holy and that he is just, and that he is righteous. Hebrews tells us, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And our worship of God is tied to our salvation. right? Meaningful worship comes out of our reverence and our awe out of God's never-ending grace and his unlimited mercy. And when we know who God is and we know his grace and we know his mercy, we are led to worship. That's where our worship stems from, is out of God's holiness and out of God's grace. It's to him that all worship is due. And so the, the fear of God means having a reverence for him. And it's this fear of God that impacts every part of our life and who we are when we understand who God is, right? It's this fear of God that we respect him and we obey him. We submit to his discipline, and it leads us to worship him when we know God. So that is some of the contextual framework as we begin to look at these passages, we look at these truths that this author shares with us, right? He's addressing the congregation. He's addressing God-fears, and when he's talking about God-fearing, he's talking out of respect for his his goodness, not out of fear for his sovereignty. And so the the first thing that he tells us that we need to do to ensure that we have meaningful worship is that we need to prepare our hearts, that we need to set our hearts on God, right? When we gather, the question is, well, how do we guard our steps before we come into the temple? How do we guard our steps before we, we come into the church for worship? And it's simple. You turn your hearts towards God, 
right? You stay focused on God, and I make that sound simple, but if you've ever tried to do that 24 hours a day, that could be hard. But here's what we do. In order to prepare our hearts for Sunday worship, guess what we need to do the rest of the week? Worship, right? We need to worship Monday through Saturday, not just a couple hours on Sundays. We need to have a heart of worship. We need to be like King David who's saying, I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall be continually in my mouth. Right? It doesn't say just when we come and gather as a group or when I'm in front of people, but this is something that we do all the time. This is something our hearts are our hearts of worship. So that's one thing that we do. Worship is not something that we manufacture for a few hours on Sunday. Right? Sunday's worship, Sunday's corporate worship is nothing more than an expression of our own worship throughout the rest of the week. The truth is, if you're not worshiping Monday through Saturday, guess what? You're just going through the motions on Sunday morning. Right? You're, if you're not worshiping God, if you're not singing God, if you're not singing praises to God and being with God, then when you come here on Sunday morning, you're just doing more of the same. Right? We're going through the motions. We're not worshiping. The, the late 19th century Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, he said this, fruitful and acceptable worship begins before it begins. Right? Fruitful and acceptable worship begins before it begins. Worship doesn't start at 10.30. Right? Corporate worship starts at 10.30. For some of you, you need to write that down in your notes. 10.30. Time we start. Right? You need to write that down. But this is just an expression of our weekly worship, of your private worship with God. I remember, she hates it when I embarrass her, but I'm going to embarrass my wife. We were in Virginia, and she was leading worship at a church. And I remember somebody came up to her, and they said, hey, how do you prepare for worship on Sundays? And her response was, I worship Monday through Saturday. Right? How do you prepare for worship on Sundays? How do you prepare for corporate worship? Well, I worship the other days. Worship all of the other days. Corporate worship on Sunday is just an overflow of our private worship Monday through Saturday. Right? So we guard our steps by focusing our hearts on God and worshiping God the other days of the week. So first, we need to prepare our hearts by having hearts of worship. The second thing that we need to do to prepare our hearts is we need to humble ourselves. Right? First, we need to humble ourselves before God. We need to know our place, remembering both who God is and who we are. Remember when God spoke through Isaiah, he said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? We have to humble before God. He's greater than us. Right? He's more powerful than us. He's smarter than us. He's deserving of our worship. Right? So we put him up on that stage. An early church father, Gregory of Nicaea, he wrote this. Knowing how widely the divine nature differs from our own lets us quietly remain within our proper limits. Right? We are not one that is to be on par with God. We are not one that is to be equal to God. God is up there and we are down here. And we must humble ourselves but not only should we humble ourselves before God we should humble ourselves before others because worship is about God it's not about you and we have to check our hearts and when we come to corporate worship are our hearts distracted or our hearts concerned with who we are and how we are relating to the people around us do we start seeing people and start saying oh I do more for the church than they do so I should sit up closer or maybe we start looking at people and say, I serve more than they do, so I'm a better Christian. Or maybe I give more, so I'm better than this person. 
I dress more appropriately for church. I can't believe they came to church like this. Obviously, I'm a better Christian than them. Sometimes we even say, I really hated that song, but I endured it during worship. Right? I did it for the sake of them. Don't know what words they were saying. That's not important, but I endured it for them. Sometimes we say, I'm a better singer than them. There was a time. It was a long time ago. We'll just say that. We were having church. It wasn't here, so it was none of you guys. And we get out into the car, and I look at my wife, and I said, man, that, that lady next to me is the worst singer in the world. And my wife looks at me and she says, she ain't the worst singer in the world. I can promise you she's not the worst singer in your row. Right? I was like, hey, all right, point taken, point taken. All right, but when those things, those things that we're offering about who we are, those are the sacrifices of fools. Right? And if, if your wife is not there to put you in place, Jesus wrote some things in Scripture we should probably read. Right? About those who have a prideful heart. Luke, Luke records a parable that Jesus taught. And I want you to notice as I read this parable who Jesus taught this to. In Luke 18, verse 9, it says, He, talking about Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that's who he's writing to. Nobody in here. And he says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus addresses both of those things. That we humble ourselves before God, that we humble ourselves before others. So we prepare our hearts by humbling ourselves. And finally, a prepared heart, a heart that is prepared for worship is an expectant heart. Right? The, the right way to approach God in worship is to come with our ears wide open, to be expecting to hear great things. We expect that there's going to be something of value to hear. Right? That, that something is the word of the living God. It is scripture that we read and that we talk. That the house of God, this church, is a place for reading and preaching of the word of God. This is what our focus is. And if you take the new members class or if you hear before, if we teach anything but the scripture, you are obligated to come tell me I'm screwed up. Right? This is what we teach and this is what we preach and this is the focus and this is the living word that still changes lives today. That is why we preach this. The first question we need to ask ourselves as we prepare for worship is, am I ready to listen to the voice of God? Is my heart open to the spiritual instruction? Are my ears attentive to the message that I will hear from the Bible? All too often when we come to to worship, the first questions off our mouth or in our head is, will I like the sermon? Right? We we are like Caesar before the games and we're like, entertain me. It's not about you. Right? That's not what worship is. And I, I promise you, if you want to be entertained, this is a promise I'm making to you. It's not in the Bible, but I know it's true. There are a thousand better entertainers than me on a Sunday morning. 
right? You can go online and you can find some really, really good entertainers. You can sit there for 45 minutes and you can be entertained to your heart's desire. If you want to be entertained, you're in the wrong spot. It's not going to work here. In this church, we open up the Word of God and we read from it and we, we, we talk about it. But I also know that the Word found in Scripture will do more to impact and change your life than anything I will ever say. And that is why we open up the Bible, that is why we read the Bible, and that is why we look at these words. That's why on Sunday mornings, we study books of the Bible. And it's not about what Oscar thinks is good or the hot topic of the day. It's about books of the Bible. What does God say? And that is what we teach. And I, like you, we should expect that when we read the Word of God, that our lives would be changed, that our hearts would be challenged, and that our souls would be quenched. Every time before we go to the Lord and worship, we should expect those things. And when we humble and expect to hear his voice, our hearts are then prepared for worship. Worship is not about what we do for God or for our entertainment or even for our selfless recognition. That's not what church is about. That's not what worship is about. That is not why we come to this place and worship. Meaningful worship is about one thing, God. That is what we do when we worship. We worship God. When our hearts are set on God and we are guarding our steps and we're preparing ourselves for meaningful worship with others on Sunday, they are set on God. Our hearts are focused on God and nothing else. And that's the first thing that we need to do to have meaningful worship. The second way to ensure our meaningful worship is to inspect our words. We are to have meaningful words. The caution that he uses to let your words be few in prayer because God is in heaven and you are on earth, that, that fits well with Jesus' teaching. If we look at the Lord's Prayer that you find in Matthew, it's an extremely short prayer and it's addressed to our Father in heaven and it is a prayer that is dependent upon the grace of God and it does not seek to gain or to leverage God by the merit or the, the eloquence of the word spoken or by the length of the prayer. It was a word with very sincere and deliberate words. The actual number of words that we use is, is not the issue. Jesus taught us, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. The truth is, church, when we worship, it's not about how much we say. The, the real issue in our worship is the words that we speak. Do we believe them? Are they sincere? Right? Sincerity is pretty important in our worship. Right? The things that we say, if we're not going through the, the motions, the, the words that come out of our mouth are extremely important. When we sing a hymn of praise, it should be with thoughts of God on our minds and love for God in our hearts. Right? Those words are directed to God, not directed to the person next to me. I'm not trying to get a record deal. I don't care about any of that. And I want to worship with my brothers and sisters. I want to offer this praise to God. Right? It's not about if we like the rhythm or the video display. It's about the words that we are singing. It's about the words that we are saying. Are they glorifying God? Do we believe them? Are they sincere words? When we worship in song, do we believe of the grace that we are singing of? Right? Are we offering up praises to God or are we simply just responding emotionally to something that we like when we pray are we seeking god's heart and his will 
or are we trying to manipulate God to do what we want to do? Do our words of encouragement reflect our heart? Do they reflect how I truly feel about God? Do they reflect uh, my, my prayers for my brothers and sisters, or am I just saying what I think they want me to say? Am I just saying what I think they want to hear? Am I trying to sound more holy or more educated, or am I being sincere in what I'm praying? And when we speak to others, are we speaking from the heart? Do we believe the wonders of God that we are speaking to those around us in worship? Do we believe the message of the gospel of grace as we talk about it with others? Or are we just going through the motions? Are we just playing church and giving the church answers? That is something that we have to look. We have to look at the words that we sing and the words that we pray and the words that we speak about God. And we have to really inspect our words. Are these words of sincerity? Are these words that we mean? Or are we just going through the motions of worship? Do we have meaningless worship? So to have meaningful worship, first thing we have to do is we have to prepare our hearts. Right? We have to have our hearts focused on God. Second thing we have to do is inspect our words and make sure that we're using meaningful words and words that are sincere and words that we believe. And then the third thing that we have to do is we have to keep our promises. Right? When we're in worship, this is, this is a meaningful obedience. When we say that we're going to do what we said we were going to do. Right after preparing us to, to prepare our hearts and to watch our words, this author tells us what to do. He simply says, do what you say you're going to do. Right? And he's, he's talking about one very specific kind of speech. He's talking about one very specific thing. He's talking about the promises that we make when we're in worship. Right? He's talking about the, the, the promises that we speak to God. Well, guess what? When we make that promise to God, being obedient to that promise is part of our worship. In this passage, we're talking about this holy promises that we offer to God that in the Old Testament they would do these gifts or these sacrifices. They're like the, the vow that Asaph describes in Psalm 76. And he says, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Right? The, the, the point that he's trying to make in these verses is very simple. If you promise something to God, you better do it. Right? That is your act of worship. That is meaningful obedience. We need to pay God what we told him we would do. And church, if you're like me, you found that it's much, much, much easier to make a promise than it is to keep a promise. But people do this with God all the time, especially when they're bargaining with God in prayer. And you're, you're familiar with it. They say things like, God, if you will just forgive me just this one time, then I will do X, Y, and Z. Right, God, if, if you will just give me money, we're trying to manipulate God, but if you will just give me money, I'll give it back to the church, or I'll give 10% to ministry, or I'll do this, or I'll do that. And we start bargaining with God. And if you've ever offered a prayer like that, then chances are you know how easy it is to forget that prayer. Right? You know how easy it is to forget that promise. You know how easy it is not to act on that vow that you promised. Right? It's not just our words that we owe God, it's our works, it's our lives, it's our promises, and they mean something, they're part of worship. If we tell them we're going to do something, we need to do it. If we make a commitment to ministry, then we need to, to commit to that promise. Right? In fact, Ecclesiastes says that we need to do it without delay. Following through promptly on our commitments is an important part of true worship. Right, when we say, God, if you do this, or I'm, I'm going to do this for you, or God puts something on your heart in worship, you're to do it. 
You're not to fight about it. You're not to try to talk yourself out of it. You're not to wait till next week when you forgot about it. Promises are not New Year's resolutions. Right? These are vows that you make with God. And in, in some cases, it would be better for us not to promise God anything at all. To not even make the promise. But the Bible assumes that there are times when it is appropriate for us to take spiritual vows. When it is important for us to make these commitments to God. Some of these vows include the, the covenant of marriage. That is something we make before God. That is something we do in public worship. That is something that we do as a church. Or maybe there's some of the promises or commitments you make when you become the member of a church. And how you will serve and be a part of that church and how you will address confrontation and and how you will support the teaching of the word and the ministries of the church and those are commitments that we make to God now there are some things and and somebody came up with these uh, advices before you make a commitment to God and I think these were actually really important we don't make make a vow just half-heartedly and forget about it first thing it says is before you make any vow to God you should pray about it that makes sense We should pray, we should seek God's heart on that. We should ensure that that promise or that vow that we make is in line with God's word. This vow that we're making, it's because of something that God has stirred in our heart and it matches scripture, it matches his word. We should make sure it's an important matter. We don't want to make a a vow to God on something that's not important, not hold true to it, and and sin, right? And create hatred. That's not what we want to do. Then we should also make sure that it's limited in scope and time, right? That we make a a vow to God. It's not some open-ended thing that we're like, I don't know what this means. I don't, you know, next week we're like, oh, it's so ambiguous. I'm not even sure if I'm doing, we don't do that. If God puts something on your heart, you say, okay, this is what you're telling me to do, and this is what I'm going to vow to do. And when we fail to do what we say, especially when we made a promise to God, the Bible says that we're guilty of sin. That's why some people say that the, the road to hell is often paved with good intentions. Like, I meant to do this. I, I promised I was going to do this. I was going to do these things, but we don't do them. However good our intentions may be, they will not get us to heaven. If we keep promising God that we're going to do this, that we're, that we're going to do that, and we're going to do this other thing, but we, we never do it, we're guilty and we just are highlighting our sins, and our worship is really meaningless. Once again, in our broken promises and in our broken lives, we can only cast ourselves on the mercy of God. We can only pray that He will forgive us for everything that we have failed to do and ask him to accept us through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus is the only one who ever kept all of his promises to God. He is, he is the only one, and I'm, I'm telling you right now, if you can't think of a promise that you uh, broke to God, give it some time. The Bible says you will. But Jesus kept all of his promises to God, including his own vow to be a holy sacrifice including his vow to go to the cross and to sacrifice his body for our sins. Jesus did it. And by the mercy of Jesus, we are forgiven for all of our failures, even our broken vows during worship. Right? Thank God for Jesus. It is not only his suffering that saves us, but it's also his obedience, right? including the perfect 
sacrifice, the perfect act of worship that he gave his Father on our behalf. Jesus died for all of our sins, including the sins that we have committed in the very act of worshiping God. The very act of worshiping the Father, Jesus went to the cross and paid that price. But Jesus did something more, according to Hebrews. He took the words of Psalm 22 and he made them his own. He said, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. He's talking to his father. And he said, these words refer to Jesus' worship, not only in the temple and not only in the synagogue, but they refer to the redeemed congregation that will be with Jesus in the end at the table, uh, the, the banquet, at the, the, the end of this earth when Jesus is, came and rules the world. He is praying that he will miss the congregation. I will sing your praises. I want you to envision the Son of God, Jesus. He's singing these words, they're spirit-inspired, and he's using them to praise the Father. And by faith in Christ, right, by faith in Christ, we, right, are part of that perfect worship. Right, it's that perfect worship that belongs to us as if we ourselves offered it up to God. And this is what it means to know Christ, is that our imperfect worship is accepted by the Father because of the perfect worship offered by the Son. And so when we know that, and I know as we're reading through this, and as I was preparing for this, I have to tell you, I was really convicted. I was convicted about my own worship. And then I was thinking, well, 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 I messed this up pretty bad. How can I go before God? Right, how can I go be, I, I do that pretty bad. And so as I'm wrestling with this, and as I studied this, and I saw that Jesus has already offered the perfect worship, and we, that, that worship now belongs to him, as his, it belongs to us as his sons and as his daughters. Man, we know that our poor and meaningless worship is forgiven. And now we can a, approach God with joy, we can approach God with confidence, Right? Rather than feeling that we messed it up or that we're doing it all wrong or that our worship's without meaning, we can go before the king and offer up worship as Jesus offered to his father. When we fear God, we can approach his throne and worship him knowing, knowing that our worship is meaningful and our worship is accepted through the life and death and resurrection and worship of Jesus. And it's through Jesus, it is our joy to know that our worship is meaningful and pleasing to our God. It's because of Jesus that all the brokenness and meaningless worship that we did is forgiven. It is through Jesus that we can have joy in our worship as we approach the throne. Church, but our worship to be meaningful and our worship must be about one thing and one thing only. It must be about God. And it must be for God. And that is how we have, right? That is how we have the ability to have meaningful worship is when we are centered and focused on God. I'm going to invite the worship team. I want you guys to come up right now. And as we close, I want to be really honest with you that as I was preparing this sermon, it led me to a time of repentance as I was made fully aware, right? That my worship is not always centered on God. I was made fully aware that my worship is not always meaningful, And as a church, 
right? As a, a leader of this church, I have a burden on my heart that sometimes as a church, our, our worship isn't meaningful. That sometimes as, as a church, we get distracted, and sometimes as a church, we, we go through the motions, and it's not about Him. And so this, this morning, as we close the service, we're going to do something a little bit different, right? And I, and, and I feel that this is the only appropriate thing that we can do is that we can go before God and repent of our meaningless worship. And we can turn to him and make him the center of our worship. So here's what we're going to do. Instead of me praying to close the, in this service, we're just going to take a minute to check our hearts. We're going to take a minute to repent. And God, I'm sorry for our worthless worship. But God, we, we, we repent and we want to turn to you. And it's because of your son, Jesus Christ, that we can worship you. And we're going to take a minute. We're just going to sing a song. And I want to, I want to encourage you. You're not going to stand up. This is a corporate worship and a time of corporate worship, but we're going to take some personal time to check our own hearts. And so you can stay in your seat and you can worship, right? You can repent and turn to God. You can come up to the front and seek God's grace in your faulty worship. You can stand up and sing and raise your hand. I don't care. This is between you and God. And then after we sing this song, we'll have a closing song. But church, I want to encourage you to repent and turn to God and experience the joy of meaningful worship.